Then Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Lord, thank you for providing this place for us to gather together and receive your word. Being known is hard, but you call us to be a living sacrifice, not conforming to this world. I pray that we are led by the Holy Spirit in the model of fellowship, of partnership, to live it out through contribution rather than consumption in the pursuit of your kingdom as our purpose, being faithful and being sanctified. As neighborhood groups launch today, I pray for us to lean upon you and trust in your will. I pray for anyone who may be afraid of joining a group for fear of being vulnerable or misunderstood, that they be comforted by your spirit of peace and truth. Being known is hard but we are called to be a light in a dark and lost world. Help us not to give in to fear and try to hide that light. Please give us eyes to see, ears to hear, minds to understand, and hearts to believe. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you all. All right. So um, we're not in Acts 2 today, although we were in Acts 2 last week. And just to remind ourselves of what we're up to, right, during these uh, several weeks together in September, October, and so on, uh, we're talking through uh, what does it look like to truly be a church that has daily devotions that might look like what the daily devotions were in the early, dare I say, first church. And it's right there in Acts 2 that they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. They were devoted to the fellowship. Now, we intentionally didn't do apostles' teaching first. We're going to do that next week. Uh, but we, we're spending now two weeks on what it looks like to be devoted to the fellowship. And if you remember from last week's sermon, if you were here, and if you weren't, let me catch you up. There were two big, uh, I don't know, th uh, thoughts for me that I wanted to make sure that you had some good understanding around them. One was uh, this idea of devotion. And if you remember the definition or some words that we can think about when it comes to devotion, that Greek word, uh, the way that you define it is to stick close to something, to hold fast to something. Something, to persist in something, to be steadfast and perseverant. That means that in, 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 uh, intrinsically, there's going to be things that are pulling you away from that devotion. 
There's going to be things that are, that are standing in your way to, to hold on to something if it truly means to stick to, close to and to hold fast to something. Something, someone is going to be prying your grip away from that thing you're, you've got to be devoted to. That was first thing that we talked about. The second thing was actually that thing or one of the things is the fellowship. And that fellowship is really a 50-50 partnership. It's business language in the Greek. It's 50-50 partnership that the church hijacks to say, you know what, it's not just a business thing, a business venture. It is for one another's spiritual good and growth. And that's how you can see it uh, throughout the scriptures. 50-50 partnership to good and growth of one another. Not just any good, not just any growth, but spiritual good. And growth. All right, you're caught up. Good job. Well done. Look at that. You just you just uh, listened to last week's long sermon in a little short form, and there it is. And that'll be the last short form we have of the day. But there we are. Um, all right. So look, like here's what I know right now. When you're thinking about following Jesus, and if you're not thinking about this, I think just un- underneath the surface, there's a battle going on within all of us, and it's ultimately this. At least it is for me, and that is, am I going to have a regular diet of Dessert, apparently, I ended on dessert last week. Apparently, I'm obsessed with dessert lately. Am I going to have a regular diet of dessert, or am I going to have a regular diet of vegetables? And we all go, I don't, maybe, is there something in between? And the answer is yes, but I'm really thinking about our own spiritual walk with the Lord when I think about sugar and substance, um, ultimately, because I think most of us get hooked on sugar like kids, and then we try to grow up in the faith, and we're still going back to that sugar, and it's not going to be there to fuel our spiritual good and growth. And I think, I think if we can see, if we, if we look at this passage, uh, we'll see the substance that God wants us to, to hold on to. That though there's a battle going on in our souls to just in, enjoy God for what he has to give us. Matter of fact, we might even come to a church, or dare I say, to come to Jesus to get a better life. That's sugar. That's sugar. We might even approach God in a way that says, I know that you'll reward me if I put my time in. After all, I know the formula of the faith is A plus B equals C. And if I just put in my A... If I just put in my, my attendance, if I put in my faithfulness, if I put in my, my, whatever, my obedience into the vending machine, I know I'll be able to punch the right number and out will come exactly what I order from my great God. He is kind and he loves us, but he is not a vending machine. And I think if we're not careful, we can approach him and God's community like he is there to give us exactly what we ordered. Dare I say rarely, or maybe I should go on and go say never. God never promised that. And in fact, we approach him in this way, but I think there is something better to be had. Yesterday, I went to the funeral of a family member, and the pastor that was doing the funeral asked this question several times as he was uh, doing the funeral, and it said something like this, like, how could a a, a man so good suffer and have such a bad ending? He was so good. He had a a great life. How could it have ended in a disease that ravaged his body unto death? How could it be this way? You see the formula that we're all prone to believe and get trapped in? That is not faith. 
That's a formula, but it is not what God has called to give us. God has a deeper desire for you than to give you what you want, than to give you what you think you need. Just like you have a deeper desire for your own kids, that you don't just give them uh, lollipops all the time, and they're like, oh, I'd love some dinner. Okay, well, here's some dessert. No, that's not how it works. In the same way God hopes for us, has a greater hope for us, than to simply have a good life. See, the trap in the American dream is that we build a really good life and we don't have Jesus. And sometimes we're content with that as Christians, especially in the suburbs. But Jesus' word is going to come along and he's going to invite us to something greater. What is the greater? What is the greater that he's inviting us into? What is his greatest desire for you? Have you thought about that? Is it to give you everything you wanted? Is it to make your life better? Is there something deeper with its longing in the Spirit of God ultimately for you? I think it's echoed in Galatians. Paul writes to the Galatian church. We've walked through Galatians as a church. But he writes to the church in Galatia. And, and in the midst of him just calling that church out for nonsense, he says this in Galatians 4, 19. He says, oh, my little children, my, my, my children in the faith, uh, for whom again I am in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. God's greatest desire for us after we've become believers is that he would reestablish and renew what was lost in the Garden of Eden so many years ago. And that is the full image of Christ in you. Remember, we were creating God's image, and then it got marred and messed up with the fall and of sin. And ever since that moment, God has been working diligently, sending his son so that our souls would be renewed into that image of Jesus. That's his greatest desire for you, is that you would be formed. And not just any sort of form, but that you would be formed into the image of Jesus. So since you've been in Christian community, whether it be in this room or in smaller environments, I'll ask you, are you becoming more and more like Jesus? And most of us would go, yeah, I got that. Or on the other side of things, we'd be like, no, never. Somewhere in the middle is healthy and good and right and true. And we need one another to ultimately fulfill God's greatest desire in each one of us, that we become fully formed and look more and more like Jesus each and every day of our life. So today we're talking about not just that we're devoted to the fellowship, but what happens? What happens when a group of people actually start to live this out and cling to God's greatest desire for us is to be formed and to look more and more like Jesus. What does that look like? Not just to come together and neighborhood group and socialize. No, no, no. That's fine, but that's not a great goal of God. That's something that we enjoy. What would it look like for a group of people to actually just push into the idea that God is forming us, God is growing us, and he wants to grow us and form us with one another? Um, when we were in seminary, uh, we unfortunately had a miscarriage. Our first uh, child was lost. Um, right when we found out, we, we lost it. And um, I remember being very angry, um, like really angry. Um, and like no one wanted to really be around me. I remember giving a presentation um, in seminary and just, I mean, just flaming and fire came out to the point where like a student was like, hey, like, 
maybe it's not their fault. And I'm like, it's their fault. I don't know who it was at this point, but it was somebody's fault. Just so angry. And I remember talking to one of my uh, seminary professors, Dr. James Allman, and I remember talking to him on the way to um, a class. And he looked at me, and he said, brother, you will never truly heal until you heal inside of community. I wanted to heal on my own. I was pushing everybody else out. I was trying to do things on my own. But instead, he invited me to know the truth. And I want you to know the truth. As deep as your wounds are and as difficult as life has been, you will never truly heal. You will never truly be formed unto Jesus until you are healing from whatever wound and pain and difficulties you are healing from until you are recovering and fully formed inside of community, and not just any community, Christian community, that distinct Christian community that God is calling us all into. Well, we are here in, in uh, Mark chapter 8, and I think in this particular uh, exchange between Peter and Jesus, we're going to see a little bit of a blueprint on how we can live that out, how we can actually like what tips can we, can we get from the way that Jesus led his small group? His small group of 12, which didn't go awesome all the time, what can we learn from that as we look at the life of Peter in particular? When we find Peter in the beginning, he's on his knees and he's begging for Jesus to go away from him. Get away from me, Lord. I'm a sinner. I'm going to mess this whole thing up. And Jesus is like, yeah, 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 I got you, man. Why don't you come and follow me? We're going to be fine. And at the end, or at least the end of Peter's life, tradition would tell us that he, again, was struggling with some sort of worth issue, like, I can't die in the same way that my Lord Jesus died. Don't crucify me, tradition tells us. Crucify me upside down. And so Peter, tradition tells us, was crucified upside down. There was a man who was not willing to be associated with Jesus, and there was a man, all of a sudden, that was so humbled by walking with Jesus for many years that he would not even be associated with that sort of death as his Lord. What happened? How did he go from, from on his knees begging for Jesus to get away from him to all of a sudden dying on a cross for the sake of Jesus? What happened in the in-between? And I think this is a great blueprint and a microcosm of what we can learn and how did he get there. Um, ultimately, I think we can learn from it. So here we go. Um, here's what it looks like to have formation inside of community as we grow together, I think the first thing that we got to think, especially as it's unpacked here with Mark 8, is that formative communities, communities that grow into Christ, that are formed into Jesus, formative communities ask good questions. It's right there in the beginning. I'll read it again so that we can get caught up. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way, you got to know, a lot of the discipleship that Jesus did was not in a room, not in a living room or a gym or a cafeteria. It was on the way to something else. He was journeying with his guys on a daily basis, and it's on the way that he looks around. And he goes, hey guys, who do people say that I am? Does, does Jesus not know? Is he not God in the flesh? He knows the answers, but he's asking this for their sake. And he goes from a surface level question and he digs into their own personal life. And when he asks the question, he says, who do people say that I am? And of course they have answers. Well, I mean, some people say you're, that you're John the Baptist and others say that you're the Elijah that was to come and still others, one of the prophets. And then he goes, okay, cool, enough about them. How about you? Who do you say that I am? 
And all of a sudden, their confession wasn't about what other people thought about Jesus. Now, they're on, they're, their faith is on the line, and it's going to be displayed with this beautiful question. And Peter answered him, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the chosen one, the promised one that was to come. He is making an amazing declaration. And so just put this in your hat somewhere, students, that if anybody ever says, well, Jesus never claimed to be God, Peter claimed that he was God, and Jesus was cool with it. And if he's a good moral teacher, then he would not have been okay with this if he was not truly God. So you could just put that away for later. And he said he strictly charged them to tell no one about his identity. Not quite yet. Because he knew once his identity got out, things would get a bit chaotic. This formative community, this, this small group of 12, this neighborhood group, if you will, uh, ultimately starts to grow up because of the questions that they're asking with one another. Um, asking questions is a lost art. Like, you don't go to social media to see what people are asking these days. They're not going on social media and be like, ooh, what questions are being asked? No, there's statements, there's declarations, all sorts of things that are being told to us on a regular basis. But it is a lost art. It is thought that toddlers ask 300 questions a day. And if you're a mom, a stay-at-home mom, they ask them, that's like, a, that's lowballing it. 300 a day, more like 300 uh, every 30 minutes. Why is the sky blue? And why do I have brown eyes? And why is this? And what's going on here? And I don't know, and I don't care, and I need to go and be alone for five seconds. Toddlers ask as many as 300 questions per day, while adults ask 30. And though we might lowball the toddlers, I think we're actually overestimating our desire to ask as many questions as adults. What happened? Why did, how did we get so certain about the world and how it works? What, what caused that certainty? And here's what I think it is. Again, go back to seminary. I would go into seminary classes, and I would have, go in with like two or three questions, particularly with one uh, seminary professor. And I'd go in, and I'd have two or three questions, and I'd come out, and I'd have like 20 or 30 questions. And it was the most frustrating experience for me because I'd go in and I'd go, okay, I got two to three questions. I just want those answered on this particular topic about all this reading, and I think everything's going to be fine. And then when I come out of that same class an hour later, I've got not two or three, I've got 30. What happened? And our, my seminary professor um, was very kind to hear my complaint. And then he also said, this is actually really good news for you because you don't know it, but your subconscious is your, you, your first two or three questions were satisfied. The surface level questions that you were asking when you got into this classroom, they were satisfied somewhere along the way, and that gave birth to all sorts, tenfold, of questions that you now have that aren't the same surface level. Now they're deeper and they're better questions. The more I know about God and life, the more questions I have. Now, that may be discouraging for you, but we serve and, and, and believe in an infinite and eternal God, and I'll tell you right now, that's one of the beautiful things that invites me in every day to want to follow him and to want to know him, because though I think I know what this passage might think or say, there is far more that I could ever imagine that's right there in the scriptures, and if I could just dig a little bit, it's there. So may my second or third question be answered to give birth to 20 or 30 more so that I might see him and know him. And it all starts with just a, a really good question. Who do you say that I 
am? That's the question that Jesus asked to Peter. And Peter, of course, gives his answer. See, Jesus models out for us, it could be a master class on leadership. What he models out for us is that curious questions give room for heartfelt confessions. It helps people articulate their belief. Here's what I know in many years of doing ministry. I could sit in the same neighborhood group with you for years, but if I never ask you to articulate what the gospel is, I'm a failure of a leader. You know why? Because you can affirm everything that I say. You could come into this room. This is why the phenomena that we have is what we have, which is thousands, millions of people going into church gatherings like this where you're not ever really allowed to articulate what you believe. You just affirm what's being said from the stage. But your faith will come alive. You will be challenged in a way that you can't be challenged in this room when someone just asks you a question. Who do you say that Jesus is? And then they pause and then they answer. I was at the baseball field not too long ago, ran into a high school friend of mine and they were struggling with all sorts of things, one of them being addiction in their family. And, um, and I just looked at her and I go, hey girl, where's Jesus in all this for you? You're telling me about all these 12-step programs and this, that, and the other. And I'm like, that's fine. But I'd hate for you to get sober or somebody to get sober and miss the Savior. So where is Jesus in all of this for you? And she just answered me and she goes, well, he's my higher power. Well, that's fine. But that falls far short of the Christ, of the Messiah, of the one who came to pay for your sin and make all things new, even us, including releasing you from addiction. It can happen. It will happen. That's what God came to do. So here we are, right? We have these curious thoughts, curious questions, hopefully just like a, a deep well, and we're, we're laying down the bucket in that well and drawing out for people with good questions what's hidden in their heart. That's exactly what Proverbs 20, verse 5 says. It says, the purpose in a man's heart is like deep water, but a man or woman of understanding will draw it out. We all have deep water in all of us, and it is called our purpose, what we hope to see happen in this life, what we hope of God himself, and it lays dormant until someone has the courage and the humility and the curiosity to ask the right questions to pull that out of us so that we can articulate what it is that we believe. We can articulate what it is that we're hoping from God himself. So have you thought, have you really sat and thought, like, what are my hopes what are my hopes in Christ? What am I hoping that he would do for me in this season? What's encouraging me about Jesus these days? What questions are you asking of God? Perhaps you need to write those things down and really think about it as you head into neighborhood groups today and this week. That's the first thing. Formative communities ask good questions. Formative communities also pursue the truth. Now this is where we're gonna uh, sit down for a little while. But they pursue the truth. If you look in verses 31 through 33, you start to see the truth on display here. And it happens inside of community. And Jesus, verse 31, began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And I love this part. And he said this plainly. He didn't hide this. He made it obvious. He was making, it, making sure they knew exactly what he was saying. And Peter, my buddy Peter, and Peter 
you know, he didn't want to embarrass the Messiah. You know, he just said he's the Messiah, right? He didn't want to embarrass the Messiah, and so he pulls him aside, and he says, hey, Messiah, um, I don't know if you know this, but you got your whole plan wrong. And he says he rebuked him. He didn't explain to him. He rebuked Jesus, which is pretty confrontational on Peter's side. That's what Peter does. He rebukes him, pulls him to the side, rebukes Jesus, right? Peter pulled him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, Jesus now, hearing the rebuke of Peter, looks it around at the other 11 and goes, Peter, I appreciate you're trying to make this private, but we're going to now make this public. Seeing his disciples rebuked Peter and said, Satan. What in the world? Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on things of God, but on the things of man. You want to know what it looks like to grow inside of community? Though we may want to keep our thoughts and our problems quietly over here and just discuss Jesus, you and me, Jesus is inviting us to discuss and process in the company of our friends or maybe strangers that are on the way of becoming friends. You know how they become friends? By sometimes God correcting you in front of them. That you came up with one thought in the midst of your friendship here and actually it was wrong. Oh, Man, I was really certain that was right, though. But it's not. And so we're confronted right here with this beautiful picture of how we might grow inside a community. And it's going to take two parties. It's going to take a Jesus and a Peter. It's going to take someone willing to rebuke, willing to say, hey, that's not right in a public setting. And it's also going to take a Peter that we don't know how he responded, but we think he responded okay at the end of all this. But if you look at the details of this text, it's really fascinating. Peter had something really good in mind, and we do too. We have some really good things in mind. You know what Peter's good in mind was? He didn't want Jesus to suffer. I will not stand by while you suffer like you say you're going to suffer. The parallel passage in Matthew 16 tells us, this is what actually Peter said, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. He had a really good thing in mind, but Jesus calls him to something greater. Again, Peter's thoughts either, one, spoke for the group, or two, influenced the group, or three, both. Just before, Peter speaks up for the group, and he says, you're the Messiah. And now he's again speaking for the group and saying, it will never happen. We won't let it happen. I won't let it happen. Not on my watch. It's a really good thing. But it's not what God wants us to pursue. Instead, God ultimately invites him for the sake of Peter and the sake of everyone else into the truth. He fortifies his disciples and forms them through a gentle and loving rebuke and invitation into the truth. So I have to ask, what do you do when you're corrected by others? You know what happens a lot in my house when we correct Others in our house? I know. Yeah, yeah, I, I got that. I know. And I wish that was limited to just the children, but it's not. It's limited. It's in me. Yeah, yeah, I got it. I know. But we don't know, do we? We need the gentle and loving rebuke of our friends and our God to 
uh, ultimately bring formation in our own souls. The thing about pursuing truth inside of community, not for the sake of affirmation of what you think you already know about Jesus, but with humble curiosity means that you will have to admit that you are wrong sometimes. And that's really hard to do, especially publicly. But did you know that our great reforming friend, Martin Luther, his first thesis, if you know church history, he changed, we're all Protestants today because of Martin Luther nailing his 95 theses on the church long ago, 500 or so years ago, and his first theses to reform the church to make it more gospel-centered, to bring the Bible back into our lives. The very first thing that he nailed to that church door was this, that when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed and wanted the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Is your life, does it reflect one of repentance, of curiosity, of humility, or does it reflect certainty and pride and arrogance? Your neighborhood group might help you see the value of one over the other. Jesus, though, was not just interested in calling Peter Satan, although he did that. Our God and his favorite small group didn't just call him a name, although he did call him a name. He did so because his really good thing was becoming an ultimate thing, which was making it a bad thing. And so he calls him Satan for the sake of everyone that are listening and for all of our sake to bring gravity to the situation, but also because Peter was convinced that what he was pursuing was really noble and good, and that is not to suffer. So as well as as well-intentioned Peter was, his mind was not set on the things of man, or they were set on the things of man and not of God. Now friends, this is what the microcosm of what the fellowship can do for us. It can remind us again and again, it can reflect upon us again and again that we sometimes have the propensity to seek the things of man over or alongside of the things of God. And Jesus, if he stood in front of one of his besties and said, man, you remind me a whole lot more like Satan than you do of my father right now, then surely we might be able to lean into these spaces and say, maybe not Satan, that might be a little much because we're not Jesus, but hey, you sure that's what God wants for you? Hey, are you sure God's calling you to that? Oh, God's calling you to that? How do you know? Does anybody else affirm that? And we can begin to ask curious, humble questions in a way that might lead that person. Maybe they are certain. Maybe God has. But with the abundance of counselors, do plans succeed? And it would be a crime if we were a people that didn't have the fellowship confronting and being curious along the way and alongside us. You see, love for one another and community, friends, demands that we risk comfort. That's what, when you pursue the truth in one another's life, you have to risk comfort. You also have to risk your relationship. Are you willing to risk your relationship with other people for the sake of their formation? for the sake of your formation, that someone might be wrong in this, and that's okay. If we share humbly and call one another to the truth, one of my favorite quotes about community, about formation, about pursuing the truth in community comes from a guy by the name of Paul Waddell. I'm gonna put it up before you. He wrote this book called Becoming Friends. 
And I'll put this before you because I just have to work it in somehow. But this is what he said about the truth and sharing the truth with one another. He says this, if we suspect the foundations of a relationship are fragile, we will say anything but the truth because we fear the truth will only expose how frail the relationship really is. In such situations, people can be cheerful and friendly to one another, and to outside observers seem full of care for one another, but they have an unspoken agreement never to be completely truthful with one another because they know that the bond of their relationship is so threadbare that the weight of the truth would snap it. I don't know what kind of relationships you're forming, and it's okay to start in the surface area, in the shallow end of the pool, but at some point you've got to get your snorkel gear out and at least go below, below the surface with some folks for a while. And at some point, you might even get out of a pool and get into a body of water, and you have scuba gear with folks where you're really diving to the depths with one another. But at some point, you've got to go from surface to significant to spiritual. And in that pursuit of that, the only way to do that is to pursue the truth and honesty with one another, with humility and curiosity. I was sharing with a friend over the weekend there's such good news in just being honest and truthful with one another. Such good news and wisdom in it that it's written down multiple times in Proverbs. I'll just share a couple of with you, one of some of my favorites. Proverbs 27, verse 6 says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Isn't that what Jesus is doing here? It wouldn't be loving to hear Peter pursue a really good thing and then just be cool with it if it meant he was denying the ways of Jesus. He says, no, no, I'm a friend to you, Peter. And I'm willing to wound you. Faithful are the friends, uh, wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. So we don't prove our friendship with people by wounding them. No, 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 no. We're willing to wound people because we love them. Isn't this what every mentor has ever done in your life? Every coach, every parent that we've had. At some point they go, hey, not good for you. This might be wounding, this might be difficult in the moment, but it's for your good and for your growth. Another proverb that I love, whoever gives an honest answer kisses the lips. You know, honest answers don't have to be a punch in the face. They could be a kiss on the lips. They could be something healing and life-giving. And so, how do you respond to rebuke? How do you respond to rebuke? Or better yet, how do you respond when you know that the pursuit of another is good, but it is not godly. What do you do in those moments? Do you shrink back from that responsibility that now God so sovereignly put in your path and in this moment, and now you've heard this sermon, and you know that God wants us to kiss one another with the truth and with honesty, not beat one another. But now all of a sudden, one of your friends is pursuing something really good, but actually isn't Godward, and what will you do in that moment? We shrink back, we put our head in the sand, we go, oh, I ain't getting in the middle of that, I ain't my business. I don't like drama, you know that. Come on, that's your, that's your deal, that ain't my deal. Where's the pastor? Maybe he can talk to them. Where's my leader? Maybe they can do it. No, it's yours. It's your responsibility. So we need to not only ask good questions, we need to pursue the truth. For Remember, Jesus said he was the way, the truth, and the life. Remember, he told us that he would give us the spirit of truth. And remember that to be people that follow the truth means we've got to admit when we're wrong. Repentance and faith. But there was one thing that was standing in the way of Peter's formation. It wasn't his good thing. 
wasn't even ignorance or anything else, the lack of someone else trying to rebuke him. There was one thing standing in the way of his formation unto Christ. And it's the same thing standing in your way. And it's suffering. See, formative communities embrace suffering. Isn't that what this was all about? I don't want to suffer. I don't want you to suffer. I, I don't think that's how the kingdom actually comes upon the earth. But if we read, Jesus is inviting him into that deep end. So let's read a little bit. Verse 31, right? I've already read this. I'll read it again. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Go down to verse 34. Now look, look at the master class of Jesus. There was a private conversation and now there's a small group conversation and now he goes even further in Mark chapter 8 verse 34. Now he calls the crowd together that was gathered around for all the things and he says, now listen y'all, if anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself suffering. Take up his cross, an instrument of suffering, daily and follow me. And whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Is that not suffering? You have to deny yourself of some pleasures and some things in this life to follow Jesus. You actually can't have it all. That you do have to deny some things in life in order to find Jesus. That's suffering. Verse 30, uh, what is it, 6. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? Suffering. For what can a man give in return for his soul? Nothing. Verse 38. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and gen sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father and with the holy angels. Basically saying, if you are not willing to be rejected by those that are sinful, if you are not willing to stand with Jesus and suffer relationally for your convictions with him, neither will Jesus stand with you in the end. It's a test of our faith. Again, suffering relationally, physically, financially, and what Jesus is trying to get all of us to see is that when we pursue the things of man at the top, we are pursuing the wrong God. When we are pursuing Jesus himself, it's going to mean difficulty, it's going to mean suffering on the way, it's going to mean loss, and it's going to mean intentional effort to see that loss in your life if you might gain Jesus. So would that be worth it to you? If you lost it all, and yet gained Jesus, would you lose it all? If you were given the choice here in the suburbs, oh Lord, I, okay, I don't want this choice, but if I was given this choice to have a good life, to have health, to have all these things that I think we pursue in life, but I don't have you, Jesus, which one would I pursue? That's the great question, and I think it's not just a, a one-time question, it's a continuous question who are all, all of us who are pursuing Jesus on the regular. Now, you might be thinking, what are the things of man and what are the things of God? Colossians 3 does a great job of unpacking this for you, um, and I'll just read a little bit of it as we, as we close. Colossians 3, 1 and 2, then verse 5, then verses 8 through 10. It says, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. You seeing it? 
where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, set your mind on things above, not on things that are on earth. What are the things on the earth? What are the things of man? Ultimately, the things on the earth, the things of man are really good things that find their fulfillment outside of the will of God. Really good things that find their fulfillment outside of the will of God. And you might be saying, well, what does that look like? I'm so glad you asked. Paul will expound. Verse 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Oh, well, what's earthly? What's, what's of man? What's a, what is of this place? Sexual immorality. It's not wrong to be a sexual being. That's what God created you to do. But at the same time, if you find that sexual pleasure outside of marriage, it's called sexual morality. It is something good found outside of the will of God. And it goes on. Your, your, your impurity, again, sexual impurity. Your passions, again, sexual passions. Not to mention angry passions. It's ultimately really strong desires that have all of a sudden fallen away from, him, from patience. They're just littered with impatience, those strong desires, those evil desires that you may have. Covetousness, that's looking upon someone else's property or people and demanding God that you do the same thing, which it says, which is idolatry. It's just serving another God. You must put them all away. Yes, anger and wrath and malice and slander and obscene talk from your mouth. And don't lie to each other. Seeing what you have, put off the old self, the the ways of man with its practices, and have now put on the new self, which are the ways of God and their practices, which is now being renewed, again, formed in you through the knowledge after the image of its creator. Peter was paving the way for good things to take precedence over his formation. And so Jesus' main point is this. If you don't like that the Messiah will suffer, O Peter, then you won't like that you also must suffer for the Messiah's sake. And so, friends, I know that suffering isn't the most popular thing to end on and go and have, like, conversation over lunch about but perhaps this is where we need to land and go, I mean, what is really standing in the way of me following Jesus in the way that he's inviting his first disciples to follow and me? What's standing in the way of that? Surely there's something in me that's keeping me from clinging onto the ways of Jesus. What is that thing? Who are those people? Is it rejection? Is it a, a perception of whatever it may be in the world. What is it that's standing in our way of following Jesus? Let's pray together. Our King, we know that we don't follow you as faithfully as even we want. And at the same time, you are steadfast. The beauty about this passage is that you don't push Peter away. No, the very next chapter shows you inviting him onto the Mount of Transfiguration where you only invited three people, John, James, and Peter. So his failure in one chapter doesn't lead to his rejection in another and instead leads to an invitation for intimacy. And so where we have failed, O Lord, there is this great invitation we have failed to call others to uh, the, the, the hard and difficult, narrow path of following Jesus, or where we've been on that path and gone, man, this is too hard. I'd rather go to the, to the broad road. 
whether we've been leading others or we've been led ourselves, where we've fallen short and just gone weary on the path, where we've used others' sins as excuses to just give it all up, Lord, forgive us and invite us into greater intimacy with you. Stand in the way, O Lord, of where we are pursuing the things of man. Call us out by your spirit and through your people if necessary so that we may find the greater. And that is following you, being formed under your son Jesus, your greatest desire for us. Lord, I pray that we would stand with our brothers and sisters, are there even the first brothers and sisters that failed along the way and yet fumble forward in faith to follow you, Lord. May we stand in the reality that you still call us your son and your daughter and our identity is not found in success or failure but in the label that you have given us as your beloved sons and daughters. Purchased by the blood of the lamb sealed and indwelled by your spirit. It's only then, O oh Lord, that we can live these things out if we truly believe that we are who you say we are to do the things that you're calling us to do. Would you help us, O oh Lord? May we honor you. In Christ's name do I pray. Amen.